And we're on air. Good evening. This is the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. Tonight, we're going to talk about a topic that we've talked about before, but there's so much information we couldn't get through it all. And again, we're still scratching the surface. And this topic is about environmental racism. And really, these are environmental crimes eventually against all of us. But it's the, they, but the history is that the most egregious effects fall on communities that are low income and communities of color. So tonight we're talking about environmental racism. And though environmental crimes affect all of us to varying degrees, those same environmental crimes attack communities of color, and as I said before, low income communities the most savagely. Meanwhile, the wealthy can escape pollution in the cities, and while they do that, the poor just don't have that same option. And we've seen it during the COVID crisis, which, while isn't pollution, it's a, it's a disease, we saw where very wealth Manhattanites chartered private helicopters and went back and forth from their office to the Hamptons while everybody else was starving and dying out there. So again, we're talking about environmental racism. And unfortunately, the political will has been historically absent to correct these injustices. Uh, and it's still the same way. The, the wealthy don't care about the poor. And by default, communities of color are more often trapped by increased poverty as well. It's a double whammy. So we'll begin this talk with the death of a nine-year-old London girl in 2013. Her name was Ella. Ella should be getting ready to attend her first prom or formal dance now. Instead, she's been laid to rest since 2013 because she was poisoned by toxic levels of air pollution. And this took place in London, as I said before. And unlike the Queen and the entire Windsor clan, she couldn't retire to a country manor. Here's the first story of several. So London Mayor Sadiq Khan uh, called this a landmark moment. Uh, the London coroner listed, added to, listed air pollution as the cause of this little girl's death. And the mayor, Mayor Sadiq Khan, quoted as saying that this is, quote, a turning point so that other families do not have to suffer the same heartbreak. This was in Common Dreams by Julia Conley. The reason I'm starting with this particular story is because when you hear all the statistics and all the science about pollution and communities of color, it's easier for people that aren't affected to just see this as some abstraction. But when you see this little girl, and yes, she was a little black girl, it makes it real. So public health campaigners in England called it a landmark ruling by the coroner in London. And this, uh, her death happened in 2013. This was, this just happened a couple of days ago. Uh, air pollution was officially recognized as the cause of this child's death. And anti-air pollution groups said this is an international first, as reported also by CNN. Now, the coroner attributed nine-year-old Ella Kesey Deborah's 2013 death to an asthma attack and subsequent respiratory failure in which air pollution, quote, made a material contribution, end quote, to her premature death. Now, Philip Barlow is a coroner involved in this in, the, in London's Lewisham neighborhood. 
And after a two-week inquest, he determined the air pollution made a major material contribution to the asthma attack and subsequent respiratory failure that killed nine-year-old Ella Kesey Debra in 2013. It was said that the pollution was caused by heavy traffic on basically one of the busiest streets in London. It's called the South Circular. And this really hit a lot of people. The British Lung Foundation um, sent out a quote saying, quote, we urgently need to see a seismic shift in the pace and extent to which the government, local authorities, and clinicians work together to tackle our air pollution health crisis. Little Ella's exposure was illegal. As it turns out, there were guidelines that were created by the World Health Organization, of which um, the UK is a signatory, um, especially in terms of particulate matter and nitrogen oxide emissions. And Ella was exposed to way beyond those guidelines. Um, Barlow, who again is the coroner, was further quoted saying, quote, Ella died of asthma contributed to by exposure to excessive air pollution. And that was in his official report. Uh, it goes on to say, quote, the whole of Ella's life was lived in close proximity to highly polluting roads. I have no difficulty in concluding that her personal exposure to nitrogen oxide and PM particulate matter, in other words, was very high. Now, Ella's mother had fought for seven years to secure what she called justice for which she so deserves, and I agree with her. And I offer prayers to the family. She was glad that Barlow's this conclusion was, quote, so decisive and so comprehensive. But the mom, the mother also told the reporters that Ella's case is, goes further than Ella. It's about all these other children in London, children of color, children that come from economically more modest means that are being poisoned. And, you know, she was quoted as saying, still as we walk around our city we, where we have high levels of air pollution, there are still illegal levels of air pollution now as we speak so this matter is far from over, end quote. And so the mom also said, you know, the World Health Report, I'm sorry, the World Health Organization uh, further reported that 7 million people die each year as a result of air pollution. Now, the cause of death was changed on her death certificate to acute respiratory failure, severe asthma, and air pollution exposure. And the London Mayor Sadiq Khan said that um, the coroner's report, report, quote, must be a turning point so that other families do not have to suffer the same heartbreak as Ella's family. Con, Mayor Khan also went on to say, quote, toxic air pollution is a public health crisis, especially for our children, and the inquest underlines yet, enough, yet again the importance of pushing ahead with bold policies such as expanding the ultra-low emission zone to inner London. Khan continued and said, quote, ministers and the previous mayor have acted too slowly in the past, but they must now learn the lessons from the coroner's ruling and do much more to tackle the deadly scourge of air pollution in London and across the country, end quote. And so <coughs> Khan wants to expand London's ultra-low emission zone by uh, next year, October 2021, and he wants some other reforms too. And a study by King's College London found 
that following, quote, a trend of inaction seen between 2010 and 2016, um, end quote, the city's air is expected to be within legal limits for nitrogen oxide by 2025. So, you know, something good happened, but why did it have to take so long? Why did a nine-year-old child have to die to draw attention to it? Moving on. The UN Environment Report. Uh, the Environmental Crime Unit, uh, known as UNEP Interpol, issued a report in 2016. And they noted that environmental crimes are on the rise, but so are efforts to prevent them. So environmental crimes, excuse me, <coughs> are recognized as among actually very profitable forms of international criminal activity. It's estimated the monetary value in 2016 was between 91 to 259 billion annually. And it's considered to be, uh, environmental crimes are considered to be the fourth largest criminal area in the world, area of crime that is, after drugs, counterfeiting, and human trafficking. But again, it's not going to get that much attention because the very wealthy can just move further out. What are they going to do when there's no further out to move to? So, <coughs> excuse me, this estimate goes along with a 26% increase compared to 2014. Now, illegal, according to this Interpol UNEP report in 2016, <clears throat> illegal activities involving the environment, biodiversity, or natural resources are not only really lucrative, but they carry really fairly low risk for the criminals. And that's because environmental crimes haven't really been regarded as a priority in a lot of countries. So there's not a lot of appropriate or proportionate governmental response. Now, there was a recent study by the UN Environment titled The State of Knowledge of Crimes that Have Serious Impacts on the Environment. And it listed five of the most uh, prevalent environmental crimes globally. First is wildlife crime. And the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and natural resources um, found that wildlife crime is very, uh, very persistent in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, mainly because there's a lot of different animal wildlife there. Um, African gray parrots, for instance, are valued between $300 and $700 on the black market each. Then there's crime number two, illegal logging. Now, the International Union of Forest Research Organizations uh, in 2016 reported that illegal logging really spanned the globe, and it's widespread, especially across tropical forest areas um, like China, India, and Vietnam, uh, who are also major importers of legal and illegal tropical wood um, products. Crime number three is illegal fishing. Now, the Pew Charitable Trust um, published a report in 2013, and it said illegal fishing is, again, worldwide. There are some exclusive economic zones in countries where I guess it's more prevalent. Now we have pollution crimes, one of the things that killed little Ella. Illegal dumping and trade of waste, and it's resulted in basically contamination of air, land, water systems globally. 
and that includes water tables and river systems. It threatens local ecosystems, it affects plants, animals, and human health. There's waste trafficking that really originated mainly in developing countries. And guess what? The European Union, the U.S., Japan, and Australia are identified as the main exporters of illegal waste shipment. Yeah, that's what that means. So we, we don't want our nuclear waste or any other toxic products in our backyard. So the EU, the U.S., Japan, and Australia just send it to other countries. Where do they send it to? Well, most of the places that, it, that illegal waste is being sent to, um, the receivers are Africa, in Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Guinea, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Tanzania, Togo, Benin, and Senegal. And in Asia, the recipients of our waste are China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, India, Malaysia, Pakistan, and Vietnam. Um, there's also the illegal production and consumption of chlorofluorocarbons and hydrofluorocarbons. And these are among other substances that are known to be ozone depleting, and they fall in that category also. This, these illegal waste shipments affect not only animal immune systems, but they also affect plants, phytoplankton, creates vulnerability to infectious diseases, um, it is the height of hypocrisy that developed nations create this waste and then dump it in poorer nations or nations that aren't as industrially developed. Illegal mining, it happens all over in Africa, Latin America, parts of Asia, and it's really becoming an issue of concern. Uh, illegal mining can have some severe environmental impacts, uh, among which is mercury pollution from artisanal gold mining. Um, there's landscape degradation and radiation hazards. Uh, when we talk about mercury pollution, understand this. It takes only a small amount of mercury to basically uh, cause all sorts of neurological uh, damage in humans, and there is no treatment, there is no cure. The major gaps, the UN environmental study identified several gaps in the response to environmental crime. The gaps include the following, lack of data, knowledge and awareness, I'm reading straight from this, lack and limited use of legislation, lack of institutional will and governance. Okay. The limited use of legislation and institutional will and governance, that's a very polite way of saying that the legislatures won't pass laws regulating this and that there is no political will to do the right thing, in my opinion. But I'll go on. The gaps also include lack of capacity in the enforcement chain. Even if they have a law, they don't put enough money into it so that um, it can be enforced. Lack of national and international cooperation and information sharing among authorities, and lack of engagement with private actors and local communities were among those listed. And again, sounds pretty familiar. To close those gaps, the following actions were recommended and need to happen. The international community needs to, and I'm reading from this, reintroduce programs of environmental crime. Initiate, quote, initiate concerted action 
and information sharing. Recognize and address environmental crimes as a serious threat to peace and sustainable development. And strengthen the environmental rule of law at all levels, end quote. So the UN environment is, this whole thing is about helping countries to develop and establish and develop strong legal frameworks to deal with environmental crime and also develop enforcement guidance so that compliance does occur. Um, the UN Environment Project recently partnered with the Africa Prosecutors Association and the idea they were they're creating training manuals and curriculum on environmental crime prosecution. And that should help countries um, actually put the actually teach police and prosecutors about environmental crime, you know, how to regulate it, how to prosecute it, you know, how to deal with people. Um, and this type of training has already been conducted in Uganda. And this report was um, was collected by Alan Mason. It's from unenvironment.org. The, there also is a 108-page report commissioned by the United Nations. Um, and again, 108 pages um, titled The Rise of Environmental Crime, A Growing Threat to Natural Resources, Peace, Development, and Security. You can you know, look it up and read it yourself. So to go a little further, environmental racism here at home in the U.S. was on the mind of Assistant Professor Mariah Gomez and student journalist Victoria Pena Parr from the University of New Mexico. In October, um, let's see now. And this was written just this past August, 2020. Um, headline, The Complicated History of Environmental Racism. <clears throat> Part of the problem is a lot of people see environmental crimes as something that, you know, our environmental problem is something that just happens to us. You know, what can you do about it? <laughs> but it's not true. The environment is affected by human influences. Those human influences are going to reflect other injustices in our system, such as racism and economic classism, which takes advantage of people who are lower income. And those forces together bring about the worst of our society, and it creates a situation where we have environmental racism. Now, Honors College Assistant Professor Mariah Gomez studies environmental racism and their effects in New Mexico. And she noted that, quote, she noted when introducing the topic, um, Dr. Benjamin Chavez initially coined the term environmental racism, but a more comprehensive definition came from Robert Bullard in his book, Dumping in Dixie. And she went on to describe how Bullard defines environmental racism as, quote, any policy, practice, or directive that differentially affects or disadvantages where intended or unintended individuals, groups, or communities based on race. Okay, it's nice language. What it's really saying is wealthy industrialists take their waste, <coughs> look for a place to dump it where they figure the community can't afford to lawyer up, and if it's a community of color on top of it all, they figure that the mainstream media is going to ignore it. I mean, let's be honest here. In the U.S., 
if um if some richly if Ivanka Trump breaks a nail or talks about fashion, everybody's there, especially on the televised mainstream media. But if we have a community of color and a low-income community of that that's had toxic waste dumped on them, and the proof is there, but again, it just isn't sexy. It doesn't get reported. So environmental racism really speaks to how minority group neighborhoods, which again are also often populated by people that are lower income, that they're they are burdened with a disproportionate amount of environmental hazards. And that includes, quote, toxic waste that facilitates garbage dumps and other sources of environmental pollution and foul orders that lower the quality of life, end quote. And this dumping often leads to multiple diseases, cardiac uh, disease, multiple cancers. And, you know, once again, these disparities, why dump on these neighborhoods? There was a study done by Nicholas Carnes, and he wrote a book called The Cash Ceiling. And this was in 2018. And he talked about how these disparities, this unfair deal, is really due to what he calls power dynamics. And, again, it is a nice academic way of saying why these neighborhoods because they can't afford to defend themselves and fight, and the rich know it. That's pretty much it. Millionaires make up only 3% of the public, but they control all three branches of the federal government. More than 50% of U.S. citizens hold working-class jobs, yet less than 2% of Congress, according to Carnes, has ever held a blue-collar job before entering Congress. No member from the working class has gone on to become a president or a Supreme Court justice. And this disparity also dovetails with racial disparities as well. The top 10 richest Americans are also white. And in 2016, 90% of Congress was white and 96% of U.S. governors were white. And this perpetuates into policies that environmental racism gets to enjoy. And you will see some of these racists claim they don't see race. They're colorblind. Nonsense. That is an attempt to erase their crimes. And that's all it is. And so what you see is these people in power, when they have a decision, where is this hazard waste, hazard, excuse me, hazardous waste facility or dump site going to be placed? NIMBY comes out, not in my backyard. They don't want it in their community. So they place these hazardous waste facilities in communities where these people do not look like them. They're not in the same tax bracket basically poor communities of color. That's it. And again, why do they do it? Because the poorer you are, the less opportunity you have to lawyer up and fight this injustice. And again, if you're a community of color, trying to get media attention is quite difficult. And if you do get media attention, it's often biased. Look at what happened in Ferguson. Everything was about if it bleeds, it leads. You had a handful of people that caused violence compared to a great deal of violence caused by the police. I know. I was there. And yet, what does the televised media push? They push the, the um, 
you know, the, the idea that the Ferguson, um, Ferguson, Ferguson protesters were violent. They were not. Okay. They were victims of violence. They were attacked by police. But they were peacemakers. But you won't see that most of the way in mainstream media. So the fight for environmental justice, and I know I digressed a bit, it began really in 1982. There were protests in Warren County, which is a predominantly black community at the time in North Carolina. There was a plan to place a hazardous waste landfill in their community. Now, after these protests, the EPA investigated, and they found three very similar landfills in, again, southern states like South Carolina and Alabama, and found that they were all very conveniently located in black or low-income areas. Now, the author of this article, Gomez, noted that a large push for policy revolving around the whole idea of environmental justice did come from the report that was issued by the United Church of Christ Racial Justice Commission done in 1987. And the report was titled Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, a national report on the racial and socioeconomic characteristics of communities with hazardous waste sites. This is the first report of its kind. And what they found, again, pretty predictable, most of the hazardous waste sites were most likely located in minority communities. There were a series of governmental actions demanding environmental justice. And it did start with President George H.W. Bush, the old man. He created the Office of Environmental Justice in the EPA. After he left office, Bill Clinton furthered these protections. He signed an executive order that required federal agencies to address and deal with environmental justice among minority populations and low-income populations in every single one of their policies. Unfortunately, these efforts never took legal roots because Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, failed to pass a bill that would have made these executive orders into an actual law. And then when George W. Bush got into office, he didn't, he didn't agree with daddy. He shifted the focus from the Office of Environmental Justice uh, and he shifted the focus from low-income and minority communities to all people. Sounds a lot like the colorblind argument, doesn't it? And that left vulnerable populations without a federal advocate, okay? Because not all people were being equally affected. That would be like saying that if you have an insurance policy and you want to spend the same amount of money on every patient, no matter how serious or trivial their disease may be. If in the beginning, the insurance policies are going to cover any cancer, that's good. It affects the most vulnerable. Cover them. But W came in and said, no, we're going to cover all of them. So, you know, if you, have, if you need a nose job, we'll cover that. We'll just take some money away from the people who have cancers. So basically, W took attention and help away from the most vulnerable communities and said, it's going to be for everybody. But we know that's not how it works. And this is consistent with the racist agenda that George W. pushed and his equally racist supporters. Then Barack Obama got into office, and he did recommit to fight for environmental justice. No legislation was passed. Then Trump came in. He, rolled, he had his EPA roll back both budget and regulations. 
So vulnerable communities are even in more jeopardy than they ever were before. So we had in, this paper goes on to talk about environmental racism within New Mexico. And there is a history of it. And it was deeply ingrained. And not only dealing with the Mexican-American War, but basically um, you can go back to the actual Manhattan Project. I'm going to skip ahead a little here. And um, when, when the Manhattan Project was in, in effect and they were working to test the first atomic bomb, New Mexico's Trinity test um, was one of the tests that kick-started the use of nuclear weapons. Um, and, and, and here's the thing, New Mexico really wasn't at the top of what they call the short list for the Manhattan Project. Okay? Um, New Mexico wasn't. Uh, they, there were actually better locations that they had identified, and one of them was Oak City, Utah. But in Oak City, Utah, they would have had to displace 40 white Mormon farming families. New Mexico has a lot of people of color, so it was seen as politically convenient and expedient. And New Mexico was chosen by the recommendation of lead, lead scientist Robert Oppenheimer. It should be noted, Oppenheimer, before he worked for us, he used to work for the Nazis. <sighs> So the Manhattan Project decided Los Alamos was the best place to, to do this. They used eminent domain. They forcibly removed Mexican-American people living there. It was an unlawful taking of land. Uh, the residents weren't properly notified before they had to move, or rather before they were removed, according to Gomez. Uh, and Gomez is quoted as saying, reports at the time say they, that they abandoned animals that the military police used as target practice. I have to read that again. The author of this article, Gomez, said, quote, reports of the time say that they abandoned animals that the military police used as target practice. Farming and ranching implements were abandoned. Families lost their livelihoods and many lost their homes. They were not properly compensated as required by the law, and as a result, a class action lawsuit was filed and settled on behalf of homesteaders and their families almost 60 years later. 60 years. <laughs> now, that's bad enough. Now, the Trinity test was conducted in an area there weren't hardly any surrounding communities. That's true. But communities downwind of the site did have environmental repercussions. And as we know, nuclear particulates, once they're in the air, they don't decide, oh, we're not going to cross the border into this next county. It doesn't work that way. So, you know, and Gomez explained that, yes, the community's downwind of the site had some very severe health effects. Um, and Gomez goes on to say, quote, regardless of whether or not they knew then, they know now what the effects are, and the government has never conducted a large-scale study to fully understand the effects, including health disparities caused by the Trinity test. In other words, Trinity test of, the of a nuclear bomb being exploded. Quote, Hispanic communities in the surrounding area were ignored before the sighting of the Trinity test site and as a result have been living with the consequences of nuclear fallout since then. The Radiation Exposure Compensation Act has never included the Trinity downwinders 
who are predominantly Hispanic and indigenous. The government refused to even extend an apology to these communities, end quote. So then in 1980, Congress passed the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation Liability Act, or CERCLA. That's the Superfund Act. We know about it here in St. Louis because of Westlake Landfill. That's another one filled with nuclear waste. But I'm not going to talk about that right now. And Superfund was supposed to take care of this. Okay? Gomez went on to say, quote, currently there are 21 Superfund sites in New Mexico on EPA's national priorities list, including three in Albuquerque. Several of the New Mexico Superfund sites are the result of the nuclear legacy in New Mexico, including uranium mining. And goes back to the Manhattan Project. So not only that, a lot of the jump start in this um, goes back to the placement of what's called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in Eddy County. And this was caused, this was brought about by an Eddy Lee Energy Alliance. In 1999, this waste isolation pilot plant was uh, situated in southeastern New Mexico. The idea was it was going to hold nuclear waste, and it was placed there with the understanding that the region was dry and isolated. Now, with this, this isolation, they use the same uh, rhetoric as the Manhattan Project, but it also disadvantages the same communities. Quote, according to Gomez, the Eddie Lee Energy Alliance is made up mostly of mostly white folks who have vested interest in these businesses. They are the same people who own hotels in the city, are the same that are sitting on the boards that make these proposals to bring these high-level and low-level waste facilities to southern New Mexico. When you look at the makeup of, the, of Eddie and Lee counties, 64.8% of the population identifies people of color. Eddie County, 53.8% of the population identifies as people of color, 41.5% of households in Lee, and 26.6% of Lee speak a language other than uh, English, which basically speak, they speak Spanish. Okay. So more recently, the Eddie Lee Energy Alliance pushed to create and expand basically a nuclear corridor in southeast New Mexico and they wanted to put a high-level nuclear dump um, through the company Holtec International. And this is a site that would be the only repository for high-level nuclear waste. Um, now, the claim is that this would temporarily hold high-level nuclear waste, but there's no long-term repository in existence. So it makes Holtec the, quote, de facto, quote, permanent facility for the entire nation. So to quote Gomez again, the, the author, more recent examples of environmental racism deal with new siting proposals like the current Holtec International proposal to build a high-level radioactive waste facility in southern New Mexico. Nearby communities that are comprised of a large number of Hispanics and Spanish speakers, those communities have mostly been left out of the process. The New Mexico Environmental Department also gave Department of Energy, or DOE, a temporary authorization to dig a new shaft at WIP the waste isolation pilot plant, without a permit. There was no public hearing. Vital information was not provided in Spanish. That is environmental racism, end quote. Yes, indeed it is. So, you know, once again, 
Um, Gomez has made the case environmental racism is in all parts of New Mexico. Um, and, you know, there's you can look at the 1986 Toxic Waste and Race Report. It gave many recommendations that are applicable today. Um, and one of the recommendations of the university's quote, assist racial and ethnic students seek training in technical and professional fields related to environmental protection, such as environmental protection, such as environmental engineering, medicine law, and related fields, end quote. And I quite agree with them. So once again, um, this is, you know, a lot of these quotes were from Dr. Mariah Gomez, an assistant professor in the University of New Mexico's Honors College. Um, the piece actually was written by Victoria Pena Parr. And this piece goes back to this past August, August 2020. So the information is actually pretty new. Go a little further. You can't make this stuff up. Trump's own EPA came to the conclusion that, yes, Virginia, environmental racism is real. So this was a report that uh, it was an article written by Van Newkirk in February of 2018. And this new report from, well, the report in 2018 from Trump's EPA found that people of color are more likely to live near polluters and polluters and breathe polluted air. And this is all happening at the same time that Trump was rolling back regulations. And they quote this 1971 single from Marvin Gaye, Mercy, Mercy Me. And uh, the full title of the song was Mercy, Mercy Me, and then in parentheses, The Ecology. Most people don't realize that. And to quote one of the lyrics, Quote, poison is the wind that blows from the north and south and east. And this song really does provide a stark environmental analysis. You know, the song spoke about warnings of overcrowding, climate change. And even though the song doesn't really mention race, the fact that it was put into Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album is pertinent because the album portrays a black Vietnam veteran coming home from the war to a, his own segregated community and really imagining the hell that people of color in this country routinely endure. And you could say the song's prophetic. And what he did is he looked at the, the data of storytelling. You know, in the black community and other communities of color, there is, according to this writer, quote, long circulated anecdotes and warnings within black communities of bad air and water, poison, and cancer, end quote. And it's true. The poor and people of color face disproportionate health risks from pollution. And often polluting industries are in the middle of their communities. We see that in um, Cancer Alley in Louisiana. You know, the Louisiana Bucket Brigade brought attention to this. So, again, nothing new. We've talked about that on this program. Uh, so researchers with the EPA's National Center for Environmental Assessment um, created this study in 2018, and they concluded that, yes, people of color are more likely to live near polluters and, and be basically exposed to these, these poisons. They're exposed to more fine particulate matter than other groups. Um, they, and the authors came to the conclusion that, quote, results at national, state, and county scales all indicate that non-white 
tend to be burdened disproportionately to whites, end quote. Now, that study does focus on particulate matter. And all that means is basically these are a combination of natural and man-made, quote, microscopic suspensions of solids and liquids in the air that serve as air pollutants. Okay, so think of the word particle, particulate. These are basically um, very small amounts of these, these polluting um, substances, okay? Um, and a lot of the particulates include automobile fumes, smog, soot, oil, smoke, ash, and construction dust. And it's a link to very serious health problems. Particulate matter um, was called out as a known definite carcinogen, uh, according to the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Okay, no guesswork there. It's been named by the EPA as a contributor to multiple lung conditions, to heart attacks, and yeah, premature deaths. The particulate pollutants been uh, also linked to asthma prevalence and severity, low birth weights, and high blood pressure. And the study comes to the conclusion, like previous works, they link the disproportionate exposure to particulate matter to, quote, America's racial geography, end quote. You can't argue that. It's there. There was a 2016 study in Environment International. Um, they conclude long-term exposure to these particulate pollutants is often hand-in-hand -hand with racial segregation, more highly segregated areas for communities of color, that is. They have higher levels of exposure to these, these airborne poisons. There was a 2012 article, Environmental Health Perspectives, and they determined that overall levels of particulate matter exposure um, for communities of color were much higher than for whites. And the article broke down what kinds of particulate matter counts in the exposures. Um, and they found some differences. Example, Hispanics faced rates of chlorine exposure at a rate more than double those of whites. Now, chronic chlorine inhalation, according to this, is, quote, known for degrading cardiac function. And this is according to the, to the, the National Institute of Health. And the conclusions from scientists at the National Center for Environmental Assessment, they don't just confirm or agree with that body of research, but they um, put it in a top-rate public health journal. They found that black people are exposed to 1.5 times more particulate matter than whites, and Hispanics had about 1.2 times the exposure of non-Hispanic whites. And they found that people living in poverty had about 1.3 times more exposure than people above poverty. So, you know, this is pretty damning stuff. Um, they also found hydraulic fracturing oil wells. According to uh, an article in Grist, were more likely to be, uh, to be found or cited in these neighborhoods of color and low-income areas. The researchers also found um, the, that benzene and other chemicals um, were also linked to rape, and this was according to um, Marshall.edu. Uh, and benzene is a proven carcinogen. There were strong racial disparities that were also linked to the prevalence of lead poisoning. And that was according to scholar.harvard.edu. 
that edu. Um, and I can speak to that here in St. Louis. Several years ago, we had such an epidemic of lead poisoning among children of color in segregated race, segregated neighborhoods that it was beyond belief. And, um, you know, we know lead poisoning, not only people think, okay, it causes learning disabilities. It does far worse than that. Lead poisoning um, damages a child's neurological system irretrievably. There, there is, you can have treatment, but it doesn't do much. It can cause not only learning disabilities, mental retardation, developmental disabilities, um, behavioral problems, um, and, and again, Democrats and Republicans alike just didn't care. So, again, this idea of environmental justice is something that has to come about. And it really crystallized in the idea of environmental justice in the 80s, according to the New Yorker. Uh, there was a landmark study conducted by the United Church of Christ, as said before. And even groups such as the United Nations you know, said, yes, environmental racism exists. And it's quoted, they, they said that, quote, environmental racism exists as the inverse of environmental justice. And that's true. It is the direct opposite of any kind of justice. And especially when the environmental risks uh, are basically aimed disproportionately at communities of color. So, again, this idea of environmental racism is, in these days, controversial. Any time somebody talks about racism, we're so polarized now, um, you know, it causes a problem. Too many whites think of racism as this uh, idea that you, an individual did something um, with premeditation to uh, concretely hurt a person of color or discriminate against them. But it's more than that. Uh, you know, I had somebody tell me, well, they don't see race. They are colorblind. That's a form of environmental, I mean, that's a form of incipient racism because they're trying to erase the differences and pretend that all the injustices from the past and that, and that still exist should just be erased then. And we'll just keep things going the way they are. You can't do that. So, you know, racism, systemic racism is such that it's a rigged system that puts communities of color at the bottom. Period. And it is, it's evil. There's no way to put it. So, and the presence of landfills and factories uh, disproportionately in communities of color is a form of racism. You don't see these companies putting a landfill in a Tony suburb that's practically all white. You just don't. And to pretend that this isn't about racism is ludicrous. We need to stop this already and face the problems head on. This is real. You know, the, the rates of heart disease and asthma in black children are double those of white children. Of course, and this was in an article uh, done by, Nash, by National Public Radio. Okay? The scientists were seeking genetic clues as to why asthma is deadlier in black. Except it's not about genetics. These black children live in areas where they're bombarded by airborne poisons that are exacerbating their asthma, whereas a lot of these white children live in 
cleaner neighborhoods that aren't so polluted, that's all. And we need to realize this. So this article was written by Van Newkirk, um, and it was it ran in the Atlanta, the Atlantic, excuse me. Uh, we're running short on time. The Sierra Club published a summary history of environmental racism. And I'm not going to go through all that, but um, they came up with some environmental justice pr- principles for all of humanity. And so I'm going to read off these principles very quickly. Quote, we support the right to a clean and healthful environment for all people, a right to democracy. We support government by the people. Corporate influence over government must be constrained to stop the erosion of the people's right to govern themselves and government's ability to establish justice and to promote the general welfare. The right to participate. People have the right to participate in the development of rules, regulations, plans, and evaluation criteria at every level of decision-making. Environmental decision-making must include the full range of alternatives to a proposed action or plan, including rejection of the proposed action or plan. Barriers to participation, whether cultural, linguistic, geographic, economic, or other, should be addressed. The right to equal protection. Laws, policies, rules, regulations, and evaluation criteria should be applied in a non-discriminatory manner. Laws, policies, regulations, or criteria that result in disproportionate impact are discriminatory whether or not such a result was intended and should be corrected. We support environmental restoration and the redressing of environmental inequities. The right to know. People have a right to know the information necessary for informed environmental decision-making. The right to sustainable environmental benefits. People are entitled to enjoy the sustainable, aesthetic, recreational, cultural, historic, scientific, educational, religious, it goes on, um, and other environmental benefits of natural resources. However, actions that tend to ruin the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community are unethical. The right to equity. Environmentally degrading land uses should be avoided, but when such uses occur, they should be equitably cited taking into account all environmental and community impacts, including the cumulative and synergistic ecological and health effects of multiple facilities. All people have the right to a safe and healthful work and home environment. The right to generational equity. Future generations have a fundamental right to enjoy the benefits of natural resources, including clean air, water, and land, to have an uncontaminated food chain, and to receive a heritage of wilderness and a functioning global ecosystem with all species naturally present. The rights of Native people. We're going to we oppose efforts to dispossess indigenous peoples of their lands, their cultures, and their right to determinate, self-determination. We support Native peoples' wielding of their sovereign powers to protect the environment and to establish environmental justice. We support an end to pollution. And it goes on. We don't have time to go through all of this, unfortunately. Um, you know, there's more here. We're going to, this is not the only time we're going to talk about this. All right. We're going to, this is going to be an ongoing discussion. Um, and, you know, I think about the, the phrase, there before the grace of God go I. Even if, especially on the part of affluent whites, even if your only concern is your own benefit, understand this that today it's communities of color. Maybe next time it'll be your community. Um, I don't have a lot of hope that affluent white communities will suddenly face this issue of racism and find 
their conscience and admit that they they contributed to this, even if it was just that they contributed to the idea of systemic racism by refusing to see what was in front of them. So, you know, again, um, this is something we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Reverend Chavez. He was a, you know, major, major, um, part, a major influencer. Um, that was born in North Carolina, protest in 1982. Um, and again, Reverend Chavez was the first person to talk about environmental racism. And um, he was right. So we will talk about that more. Um, you know, once again, this is something that all of us have to deal with. Even in California, there's a community in California fighting environmental injustice in East Los Angeles. Um, we will talk about that next time. We're running out of time. So we talked about a lot of different things tonight. I, you know, I admit that. So in conclusion, and again, we, this is going to be an ongoing discussion. Environmental racism has been discussed since the 80s when the Reverend Chavez denounced this crime, hum, humanity, in Warren County from the proverbial rooftop. Put bluntly, environmental racism is the ultimate corporate crime of convenience. Large-scale polluters target low-income communities and communities of color because they frequently lack the fiscal or money resources to fight these corporate criminals. Furthermore, such corporate criminals probably bank on the structural racism which permeates the United States, including our media. You know, while Oprah continues to be a media influencer, and Obama fans still make the specious claim that we are, quote, post-racial, whatever that means, the ugly truth remains. Namely, that the mainstream media does not, especially on television, does not care about communities of color unless they can feed racist tropes blaming communities of color for their own misfortunes. Mainstream media, including MSNBC, only seems to focus on communities of color if there appears to be rioting in the streets. The stories on Ferguson in my own hometown focused on alleged violence, which was actually perpetrated by multiple police departments. I witnessed it myself and virtually ignored the many peacemakers that were involved. I was there. I am barely five foot two. And when I was amidst the protesters in Ferguson, I never once felt unsafe. The only time I felt in danger was when a police officer approached. And I personally witnessed how they abused people. So, you know, the fact is that most Ferguson activists were peaceful, but that didn't sell on televised mainstream media. The same bias lens also controls sto stories on environmental racism, especially on TV. So what I would, I would ask someone like Stephanie Rule, Find your conscience and then answer this honestly. How much are black and brown lives worth? Something to consider. And that's my report. See you next week on the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Marloff. Good night.